לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Hello and welcome to another edition of Parcher Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Baum at Highland Park, New Jersey. Highland Park, New Jersey, Double Corrigation Township. And joining me are good friends, Rabbi Barry J. Chesler, Solomon Shekhar Day School of Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski of Anshay Chesed in New York City. It is great to see you guys. We want to thank our viewers and listeners for being with us. We honor you. Build this audience. This is such a great audience. We have so much fun with you. The Parsha Talk, and getting right into Parsha Talk, this is Parsha Tetzaveh. It's also a special Shabbat this week. It's Shabbat Zachor, named Zachor because of the special maftir taken from uh, the book of Deuteronomy at the end of, uh, what is it, Parsha Kitetse, Zachor, et asher asa lecha amalek, and, uh, and because it's also leading up to Purim, which in the year 2023, 5783, comes This Monday night, Monday night after the day of Tani Esther, Monday night through Tuesday in um, uh, all cities that do not have a wall from the time of Joshua, which would include Highland Park, New Jersey, New York City. <laughs> <laughs> What's your town, Barry? What? I, I live in Huntington. My school is in Williston Park. Okay, so uh, to the best of my knowledge, neither of those had a wall from the time of Joshua. So uh, It depends which Joshua had. Exactly. Okay. Highland Park, you could argue, because there's some, there's some ancient settlements in New Jersey. I don't know, but maybe New York City, there's, there, you know, indigenous peoples, they didn't have walls. Well, Look. there is Wall Street, but I don't think it's quite that old. Indeed. Okay. Let's start with Titzavah. Let's start with the end of Titzavah. Um, the, the, the Parsha deals, continues to deal with items for the priesthood, items for the Mishkan, A lot of focus on the clothing of the Kohanim uh, in intricate detail, sumptuous detail describing the Kohen's uh, outerwear and underwear. And underwear also, and, actually. What's that? Underwear also. <laughs> underwear also. His headdress, his the, the, the turbans and breastplate and shoulder pads. All you should show the picture. You should show that picture. I should show the picture. Let's see if it can come up. On... This is an actual photograph from the First uh, Temple. Yeah, exactly. Sure it is. Okay, here we go. We are sharing the picture of a uh, the uh, Kohen Gadol. And look, yes, this is what uh, Don Cherry is behind him, because Don Cherry is uh, was in my class this week. The tzitz is the, what we're referring to as the, the, head, the, the forehead plate, the mitznefet, the turban, Choshen Mishpat, the table of all the names, in which you have the Urim Vitumim, the colored gemstones of the, uh, the Urim Vitumim, Ketona Tashpets, the you know, various, the adorned tunic, the Avnet, his uh, waistband, Ephod, his uh, you know, outerwear, apron thing, apron thing, Michnesayim, Mitachat Levgadim, which are not in here, And the meal tehela, and you can see at the bottom there are. They don't really talk about the bells here, 
but there are bells and and you want to talk about the bells for a second barry you want to why why why, why is a coin wear bells well that's a good question the obvious reason is he has to make noise that's the only reason to wear bells but what is the noise for and apparently it's a kind of alarm system is to make him realize what he's doing and where he's going which is actually quite dangerous yeah so even though I think I said a few weeks ago when we were talking about the time when we wanted to live, and for me it was the second temple period on Yom Kippur, where the Kohen would go in with a little thread or rope tied to him in case, God forbid, something would happen. He could be pulled out without endangering other people who had no right to go in the Kodesh or Kodeshim. The bells seem to symbolize the need of the Kohen to always be conscious of what he's doing. And what I liked about the picture, Elliot, with the breastplate, situated as it is, the Kohen himself is a conduit for God communing with the people. It's as if God is going to speak through the Kohen, who's no longer entirely a human being, but a clear vessel for God's word that it should come out to the people. Yeah. The uh, my, my wife Amy has recently gotten into tap dancing. Okay. Really, and we've she's both been taking classes and We've watched a lot of tap dance videos. And one of the things which I, I didn't really appreciate and actually read, read a very cool book about this. Um, one of the things I didn't appreciate is that it, it is a dance. It's also a percussion instrument. Like the the people who are tap dancing are if, are functioning like drummers. Um, and the same way drummer can, you know, vary the rhythms and do all kinds of very creative and and engaging uh, syncopations and like the very steps that they make, turn their legs, turn their feet into musical instruments. And there may be something going on here too. It, it is exactly what Barry said, an aid to the Kohen's own kavanah. But you become, can you imagine it as, as a Kohen walks by, the, the priest, high priest is not only this regal creature wearing gemstones, he's also a musical instrument. And it's something perhaps sounds beautiful just as they walk by. Well, is he trying to let God know that he's coming? I mean, that that's one way of explaining it too. I mean, obviously God knows that he's coming, but is he saying, you know, with the with the little bell sounds, you know, I, I'm stepping in stepping into the zone, God. And I, I want you to know that I'm here. I want you to know that I'm why would God want to know that he's here? You no. Know, so it's not that or why God would knows. the Kohen want God to know? In other words, what is the impetus for the Kohen to make this signal to God? I mean, what you're suggesting, I think, is a kind of reciprocity. Is what that in order for the Kohen to function right correctly, not only must God speak through him, but the Kohen has to be able to speak to God. And he has to be able to get God's attention. Exactly, exactly. And I think there might be some of that going on. Look, you know, it's it's very interesting that that the bells and and truthfully all of the different implements of the kohen gadol are found in the synagogue i always like to point out to you know especially when you teach this to children that in these parshiot you know where the the bigadim the clothing of the kohen gadol is described described you have some of the remnants of that in the genius way that judaism tries to transpose the kohen gadol to the clo to the to the adornments of the Torah. You have the, the tzitz, you have the choshen. Many of our Sifri Torah are adorned with these kinds of things, including bells. I don't know, Barry, it, it, you know, in your shul, do you have like a crown with a bell? Or Jeremy, you haven't... 
Yeah, I think that we have a noisy Torah. <laughs> a noisy Torah. <laughs> I have I have several, you know, they and the bells fall off from time to time and it's But so but think about it for a moment. So in your shul, there's a procession with the Torah. Exactly. My shul is a very small room, so it doesn't quite process in the same way. So what is the function of the bells making noise in your shul? I, 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 what are people actually hearing when they when the Torah gets marched around? Whatever they want to hear. No, I, I. so here I'll tell you what I hear, which is I'm hearing a reenactment of the Kohen Gadol. And I'm, I'm hearing this kind of transposition of a you know, biblical adornment to the Torah in a way that that Judaism is, you know is creative, ironic, paradoxical, but also beautiful. You know, it's so yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, what, what's interesting? We sometimes speak of the rabbis democratizing Judaism because now high office, being a rabbi, which used to be a high office, um, I guess before I inhabited it. Um, is open to anyone, unlike the priesthood or the kingship. But what you're talking about is also a kind of democratization in time because the Kohen Gadol wears all this stuff on Yom Kippur. Correct. Well, in order to well, go wait a second. Actually, this, this, is, this is quite yeah. right. The Kohen Gadol wears the Bidei Lavan when... What, what doesn't have all this stuff when doing the specific Yom Kippur stuff? Isn't that correct? I'm the not sure, but change his you know he's not going to be sacrificing animals with all those clothes on. No, he, he calling they'd be covered with blood when he's the first one. Well, the, this is obviously uh, the, the bloodiness of it is obviously a, a right. So a, the point I want to make though is that with the bells on the Torah. And if we're comparing that to the Kohen Gadol entering the Holy of Holies. Well, we do that regularly throughout the year, right? Every Shabbat, we, we hear in your shul, Elliot, the sounds of the bells, and that's supposed to remind us of our own access to God, right? That's what I thought I heard you say. I, I, I'm, I think, you know, and here we'd have to kind of do a little research to clarify. The Kohen Gadol is wearing these clothes in the whenever he is in the holy areas, okay? He's not going into the holy holies until uh, only, uh, except on Yom Kippur, but he's certainly, uh, you know, around the Mizbeach, he's certainly uh, lighting the menorah, he's certainly with the Shulchan, he's certainly um, with the Ketoret um, at, at different times. And so he's not wearing, you know, the uh, B, the uh, the B uniform. He's always wearing the A uniform, uh, and um, and then when he has to leave the precincts of the holy area, he has to he has to take them off. That's what um, the avoda service is all about. He goes. He has to change his clothes. He he immerses. He changes his clothes again, and he and and you know it's, I'm I'm thinking of it as it's reflected in the Yishai Rebo song on that. Which is a lovely, lovely song. Okay, so so we have. I just I just want to say real quick, the, on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol wears the regular stuff, the big days I have, all the stuff we're reading today for all the other stuff, the specific um, avodot, the specific sacrificial worship things, the pulchan, the rite of the Yom Kippur, the the seir hamistalech, the scapegoat, the purifying the Beit Kodesh Hakodeshim, the Holy of Holies, those things I'm pretty sure are done in the white garments that don't have the bells and don't have the other stuff. Because of course he couldn't, the the the, uh, the gold is what makes l- 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 tifaret, as our Parsha says today, 
um, won't work on Yom Kippur in which they can't wear the gold because it'll remind God of the hey, golden well, calf. Yeah. So, so I think that the the particular bell part of the of the of the garment is general and not Yom Kippur specific. I could be wrong about that because I, because let's all admit that. This is not the. This is one of those things that's just in the mystery of the descriptions. I never quite grasp exactly well, what's they, going on. They have the, you know, they, they, all of these things, including the things that we talked about last week. They they live in our imaginations more than they do in in, of course, reality. They 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 are all symbols of of things that are trying to express the inexpressible, which is what what is you know evoked at the end of the parsha. Where it says in chapter twenty nine, verse forty three, no adati shama livnei Yisrael v'nikdash b'kvodi." I will make myself known to you. I'll meet you there. Meet the people, the children of Israel there. V'nikdash b'kvodi, and and uh, and will be sanctified with my uh, glory, my honor, my presence. V'kidash diroel moed v'etamizbech. I will sanctify the tent of meeting and the altar and Aaron, etc. I will dwell in the midst of Israel and I will be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God. Who took you out of Egypt. I almost like one of the here. To dwell amongst them. So what's the purpose? The purpose of all this, again, in the coda here of this passage is that he's going to meet there, and and this obviously raises the question. You know, how does how do you meet God? You know, Barry, um, probably with a Hallmark greeting card. But <laughs> what, what's comes through in your description now is that the Ohel Moed is about sacred space, sacred place, but its effect is to do something with our sense of time. Because God is not meeting us in the place. He's meeting in us. He's going to dwell within us. And that's going to happen at some moment or some extended period, perhaps, of time. Because there's this tension in Judaism, I think, between time and space. Um, you know, wonderfully captured by the late uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, where he described Shabbat as a palace in time. Also trying to bridge the physical and the temporal world in some symbol. And I think, you know, we're getting ready in addition to Purim for the golden calf next week, which is the, the great symbol of, of God in an idolatrous way. And the passage here seems to remind us that we don't look for God in a place or in the space, but we look within our heart. And we all know we can't really do that. We're not heart surgeons. Um, but it's supposed to speak to us in a similar way that, you know, going back to when you had the description of the, uh, the Yaron in the Kodesh HaKodeshim with that, that little dot of space, which is supposed to represent God in the Holy of Holies, as well as the, the great universe beyond, which represents the infinity of God. I'm going to ask a question. To, I mean, and I'll, I'll pose this to Jeremy. You're, you know, more mystically inclined than I'll admit me. Okay, <laughs> so so could these function then as some kind of meditative, kabbalistic? You know, um, d does one 
have you encountered in any of your reading or study of the Kabbalah uh, a kind of meditation on the Mishkan? Do you ever, you know, does is there a person, you know, because I was I was I was experimenting with this last week, you know, and thinking about the 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 uh, Aron Kodesh and say, okay, so imagine, you know, you did a meditative exercise and you close your eyes and you you try and get that infinitesimal light source from above the Kruvim. And I'm thinking, like, that's interesting. That's fun, you know. But, but, I mean, this is all we're doing. We're we're trying to imagine these things, in, you know, in in our in our mind. No. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I don't. I'm not grasping right now. I'm, I'm sure that we could find um, the mystical language to to approach that. But I would just say as follows. Moshe, and this is going to be next week's parsha. When he goes in the when he goes in the sacred place and meets God, he takes away the veil and begins to glow. He's had an experience that makes him glow, and when he comes back out in the world, he puts on a veil. It's, it's only mentioned, you know, here in Parsha Kitisa, Ki but it's such a resonant image that that I think in Jewish like lore we we think about it a lot. Moses has had experiences of God which leave him luminous. In fact, leave him so luminous that he can't really relate to everybody in the normal face-to-face human encounter way. So I think that the thought that you could meet God, again, like obviously the way we have it is that that being in the presence of the Kruvim, the, the, the throne to the invisible God, the box holding the broken stones, you know, um, it's not something that that every Israelite would ever have experienced, but the idea I think is that you can have such face to face encounters that that leave you totally changed. And I also I also resonate now not in a these are kind of mystically inflected, but they're not the mystical tradition, the conventional rabbinic tradition, midrashic maneuvers that 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 treat every part of the mishkan as part of the human body. You know, like there's there's the menorah, and that's like the eyes because it's luminous, and then the 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 planks are like the bones, and you know the, this midrashim that goes through each techeret is this, and argaman is this, and tolat shani the colors, the different color threads are this, that, and the other thing. Gold is this, and silver is that, and copper is the third thing, and they try to turn the human body into um, the, the 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 mishkan becomes a symbol for the human who is the sacred space themselves, him or herself and themselves. And the wearing of the sacred garments, I think, is a similar sort of thing. If you if you were the Kohen Gadol and you're, you have the names of the tribes of Israel inscribed on your chest and on your and, and on your shoulders and on your, the band on your forehead says, holy to the Lord, you are going to say, aha, I am turned into a living vessel and I think that's a profound, like, meditative technique. If you just thought of yourself, like my, one of my own small meditations, our, our many listeners have certainly seen the Harry Potter movies. And, you know, there's this there's this thing called the Marauder's Map. If the wrong person looks at it, it's just a blank piece of parchment, but the right with the right spell, the, the whole map of Hogwarts appears on it, and the words appear on it. And I like to imagine, as I'm saying the Shema, wearing tefillin, they're like the words are appearing on my body. The Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai Echad is like, is like emerging out of me like the Marauder's Map. 
you become something sacred. You become a sacred being, a sacred personality. So I think this has got a lot of meditative potential. So just out of curiosity, Jeremy, do you associate that feeling with a sense of luminosity? Well, with the specific meditation about the tefillin, I think of it as becoming like a, 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 like a cloth, like the, this parchment of the Torah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think the story of Moshe coming down the mountain and glowing and not even knowing that he's glowing, I think is like, is, is a, is a kind of luminous feeling. So I would offer a slightly different take on Moses coming down that the luminousness that he experiences is on the inside, but what the people experience of it is disfigurement, right? There's something that they can no longer look at not necessarily in a positive way, but in a negative way, because his experience is so profound and it's so unavailable to them. Fascinating. Okay. We, we're going to, we're going to just going to pause the here and change gears completely because we have Purim coming up and, and we don't have a lot of time, but we, we got it. We got to do our, our annual random Purim text generating verse generator. Okay. And, and uh, I happen to have, one of those uh, dice uh, programs. Uri Here we go. This is the the dice. Okay, and we're gonna roll the dice, and we're gonna pick a. We're gonna let's go. Chapter two, verse five. Chapter two. Wait verse a second. Five. That is so cool. That verse thing. Well, the dice thing. Where do you just find it? I like call it some dice. teaching tools, whatever it's called. I don't know. Chapter two, verse five. Here we go. Uh, oh, I, I, I can't I, put I, it here. Two, the wrong Megillah, Kohelet. Chapter 2, verse 5 in the book of Esther, it says as follows. Oh my God, look at that, look at that. There was a Jew. Okay, Barry. You got 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Give me your best vort on Ishihu Diyayabishushana Bira. Off the spot. This is so the the genealogy is striking because Kish is the father of Saul, if I remember correctly, and from the tribe of Benjamin. And so Mordechai is identified with the smallest of the tribes. Yeah. But a proud Judahite, as it were, which is the largest of the tribes. So he spans the smallest to the largest and is going to become the representative of the southern kingdom, which comprised the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, okay. along with the Kohanim, of course. I'm, I'm going to give a shot on this, okay? Which is that, don't isn't it interesting the way the verse is divided into like two kind of sections? Ishiudiyayabishashanabira. And then the name and the geology, as you mentioned, and so here we're getting we're getting his, the you know the the space, you know the 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 place that defines him, and that he is a Jew within this kind of non-Jewish Gentile territory, Shushana Birao, however you imagine the the capital, and so that already gives us the literary tension of the book that here's a Jew in the Gentile capital. Uh, and what does that mean? And now you've given me his identity, Ushmo Mordechai. He has a name. He has a genealogy. Okay. All right. Generate another one, or Jeremy, want a little comment on that? 
You go. Give me a new. Give me a new dice. Give me a new one. Here we go. Share the screen. Here we go. We're gonna dial up another verse. You're gonna get chapter four, verse two. Chapter four, verse two. You, you realize, by the way, the way you got it set up, we can only get the first six verses. No, I know. I know. You shouldn't spread the. Great. Don't tell our listeners that. Chapter four, verse two. Oh my God, this is such a great one. Okay, what does it say? Mordechai went up to the gates of the king because you can't go to the gates of the king in uh, a uh, wearing sackcloth. What is going on? We gotta go one and two. So Mordechai learns learns that there's this decree been, been placed upon the Jewish people. And he tears his garments and he puts on sackcloth, the symbol of mourning, and dust on his forehead. And he goes out in the, in the course of the city and cries out a very bitter cry. And he reaches to the gate of the king, but you can't enter the king if you're wearing, you can't enter the gate of the king if you're wearing sackcloth. There's so much to say about this. First of all, there's a great Midrashic tradition. You know, Asav, when Jacob steals the birthright from Asav and steals the blessing, Asav cries out, uh, a very, very bitter wailing cry, and the rabbis say, you know, don't think, don't think God ever forgets anything, because this is going to be recompensed when some Jew, some, some, some descendant of Jacob, has to cry a bitter cry, and it's, it's this one. So there's a, there's a kind of a, you know, karmic quality to this, um, and, and you can't come to the king's house in mourning. Now, maybe this is mockery of a Hashverosh. There's wickedness in the world, but behind the gates of the palace, there's only happiness, there's only fancy clothes, there's only joy. But right outside the gate of the king, right outside the gate of the king, there is only there is only uh, uh, you know bitterness and sorrow and mourning. And so I think, I, I think broadly speaking, my my subversive reading of the book of Esther is that um that King Ahasuerus is, is a kind of a satire on the king who should be running things better in the kingdom, the big one, and and you, you only joy in God's realm, but you know what? Down in the world, there's lots of pain. You know, I react to Vayikra, that's in chapter, the verse 1, the first, 4-1, Vayikra Mordechai at Bigadav, the, the tearing, of course, that you know, we we have that in the Kriya ritual, mourners do it, mourners do it today, on their clothes, on their shirts, and sometimes, you know, obviously on a ribbon. Also, we 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 do that with uh, members of our shul who who you know are uncomfortable. But um, this is not on death, though. This is on on learning of terrible things, you know. And, and I mean, we would be remiss, I think. I, we didn't want to really get into it, but but terrible, you know. Th- there was a terrible event this past mm-hmm. week in, in Israel, of course with the murder of, of the two boys and then the murder of an American Israeli um, in, in uh, northern, uh, the northern Dead Sea area. And of course, uh, the terrible looting, not looting, burning of, of Khawara. And reading about that, you read that, that, that Jews perpetrated this event in, in this Arab town. And, and, you know, there is a kind of instinctive reaction of, of wanting to, you know, bend your garments in some way. This is this is the brokenness. There's a brokenness in feeling that the world is coming apart, and that's what Kriya is all about. That the somehow outside 
things are 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 not what they need to be and and we have no other way of expressing that and i didn't want to take that too serious you know in in that area but we how can we not i guess uh should we generate another verse can you, can oh, you make boy. can you make dice that are have more than six sides? Well, we'll do, we'll do it twice, okay? So add the left one that's four five, and we'll add that'll be ten two. So so ten seven. We don't even go to ten seven. We have to do this again, okay? So we got one two plus. Let's make that chapter three verse six. There you go, chapter three verse six. What do we got? Oh yeah, okay, and. I'll go to five. When Haman's son and Mordechai were not near their battle, he was filled with rage. But he 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 it was he disdained to lay hands on Mordechai alone, having been told who Mordechai's people were. Haman plotted to do plotted to do away with all the Jews throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus. Yeah. Talk about it. Haman was maybe another Esav reference, by the way. Esav despised the birthright. Haman in this scene is is seen to uh, be so ambitiously wicked that he doesn't want to kill his enemy. He wants to kill his enemy's whole family. And I do think that, by the way, the long history of Am Yisrael and its enemies, um, this this kind of works, right? Like nobody's ever against a Jew; they're against the Jewish people, right? And our our identity as individuals sometimes gets like in the eyes of those who hate Jews, they just associate you are one member of this entire wicked thing, and I and I hate them all, and I want to I want to I want to strike at all the Jews. I think that that is kind of a a feature of what it is to be to be a victim of anti-Semitism. Yeah, so ahead. what I would add is that Haman personalizes everything. Right? Mordechai's action is not directed towards Haman so much as it is an affirmation of God. Now, I've had occasion to uh, mention a teacher I had at Spurtis College of Judaica, Rabbi Martin Goldman, who said the problem is not anthropomorphism, talking about God in human terms. It's rather people thinking they're God. And we have an element of this in Haman, who thinks of himself as God. That's why he wants people to bow down to him. And Mordechai, of course, bows down in our tradition to the one true God, and not to Haman, who's you no. Know, so let me let me ask you on that on that note. You know, we often say about the Book of Esther that God is not present in the Book of Esther. One cynical colleague of ours said, "Because he would be embarrassed to be in there." But, um, but, but you know, are there divine elements? Are there God elements in? Would would you say? I mean, this is a theological point that you made, Barry, which is that he doesn't bow down to him because he only, he, you know, the 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 hidden truth there is he only bows down to God, to the one God. Is that? Is there theology in the book of Esther? Well, I, I think we could understand it in one of two ways. We could say that this is how God acts in the Galut in the diaspora, because you have to remember at all times that the story of Esther takes place in Persia. Yeah. But also, it's a modern situation as well, that after the destruction of the temple, God is not at our beck and call. and But he's not 
completely divorced from the world that we live in. And so we look for signs of God's presence, rather some indirection, perhaps we could say, rather than a direct presence. Why don't you say one? Well, make a comment on that point. Um, I would say that there, of, of course, there's the famous verse that Mordecai says to to uh, to Esther. You know, come through here, and if you don't, you know, may, maybe this is why you have attained this position. And if you don't stand out, then 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 uh, rescue will come to the Jews from some other place. And those things are read as God's, you know, God's pulling the strings behind the scenes. I, I don't, there's probably somewhat to that's true, but what I would say is there's not theology in the book of Esther. What there is is religiosity. That is to say, not not the story about God, but the story about how human, faithful human beings respond to, to all the difficult things in their lives. So Mordecai, you know, God doesn't show up for Mordecai, and Mordecai is devoted. Mordecai is, is resistant of idolatry, resistant of assimilation, and he's going to hang in there. And Esther is brave because she has to come through. And she comes through on behalf of Am Yisrael. And those things, they may not be theological in the sense that God isn't saying, acting, doing, teaching, but they are religious in that they are human responses to wanting to keep keep faith. So I, I would just add that your cynical colleague would read me Makom Acher from another God, that if yeah. Esther doesn't do it, <laughs> then help will come from another God to replace okay. our God. And I would, you know, there's there's plenty of politics. Let's do one more. Let's do one more verse here, the time allowing. Let's, are we going to roll again? Here we go. We got five. One, should I do it again? It's called chapter six, verse. No, no, five, one, six. Uh, no, we don't have chapter. I'm going to start again. Okay, so. No, no, you, had, you, had, you had five plus one. That's chapter six. And okay. verse six, four verse is, is verse ten. Perfect. Okay, chapter six, verse ten. And share here. Stop share. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Nice one. Nice one. Chapter 6, Ahasuerus can't sleep, and mm -hmm. and, and he has to, he, he's out of Ambien, and so he asks for a history book, which is very funny. I'll read the history book. That'll help me fall asleep. And and he knows that Mordechai has done him a great favor. He exposed the traitors big time in Teresh, and he realizes that he's never been rewarded, that the king has never been rewarded, and he, the king has never rewarded this loyal Mordechai. So he says, oh, we got to do something about that. And then and then he says, okay, somebody advise me on what we should do for somebody the king wants to honor. And Haman, he says, who's, who's, standing, in the, who's standing in the hallway? And it's Haman. He says, come on, bring in Haman. And Haman, what, what do we do? If I, if, the, if I, King Ahasuerus, really wanted to honor somebody, what should I do? And Haman's thinking, baby, this is me. He wants to honor me. So you'd let you let him ride on the, ho on the royal horse and wear the royal garment and wear the royal crown and all these wonderful things that I would love. And Ahasuerus says, that is a great idea. Get Mordechai and do exactly that. So verse 10, quick then, the king says to Haman, get the garment and the horse, as you said, and do this tomorrow. Who sits in the king's gate? Leave out nothing of all you propose. So Haman, who thought he was gonna ride the horse, takes the garb and the horse, and he arrays Mordechai, and he parades him through the city square, and he proclaims before him exactly what Haman had always wanted to say. This is what you do for the king, for the man whom the king wants to honor. Isn't it amazing, you know, that the parsha deals with clothing, and that this little verse here deals with clothing also, and that that putting the royal garments on the, you know, on Mordechai um, 
is a way of elevating him and 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 that's what clothing does to us you know there's that uh sid caesar the show of shows or what is uh, is a beautiful uh mel brooks skit where they they're dressing the the um the doorman and 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 it, he's it's he, well you'll watch it you know it's he's putting the epaulets on and he's putting the buttons on and the, and and you know he's looking like a german general basically and he goes out and he's a doorman and and um the idea of the uniform the royal the royal garments taking you from your regular state and making you special you know we don't have that i mean i do feel special when i wear a suit you know especially a new suit if you ever get a chance to wear a new suit jeremy your son's getting married in a couple of weeks you got a new suit <laughs> i got a rental tuxedo all right tuxedo. he and and didi got didi bought the tuxedo or somebody bought him a tuxedo more more expensive than any suit i ever bought for myself let me tell you <laughs> but there's something there's something when you put on a garment you know especially a nice one it's it's one of the great joys of life and so is this <laughs> so is studying the torah together you know the three of us as we've been doing now for three years we're on the third year anniversary here i think shkalim was was the a triennial cycle unbelievable three years and many of our viewers and listeners have been with us from day one including like my mother and including other people and we are so so thankful that you have been with us we will celebrate the third year parsha talk anniversary with you in addition to that we're celebrating purim happy purim everyone pray for everybody you know what you should do you should be sure on purim you got to give matanot lev your name absolutely gifts to the poor Mishloch Manot Ishlorehu and and send send your friends cookies. Amen, amen. Have a wonderful, wonderful Shabbat and a beautiful forum. We will see you next week on the next edition of Parsha Talk. Everybody, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.